0: Well, when we misunderstood, un- misunderstand who someone truly is, we're bound to misinterpret their motives and their actions. When we don't understand a person, we're bound to misinterpret their motives, as their intentions and their actions as well. For a few minutes this past summer, just a few minutes. As Carolyn and I were in several African countries, Carolyn and I were the king and the queen of Rwanda. We ruled with an iron fist, that nation. We thought we could really get used to this, you know. However, of course, we really were not the king and queen of Rwanda. But in our self-deluded thinking, we would have been drastically misunderstood because it wasn't who we truly were. You and I, whether we realize it, and many others have done this with God. We misunderstand who God is, and as a result, we totally do not get His intentions and His plans for this world and also for our lives. This is the situation. This is the dilemma. This is the challenge and the problem that Micah is facing in this passage that we're going to look at today. Michael was criticized by the other prophets of his time, many of the other prophets of his time, because he had an accurate understanding of God's character, but they did not. They had an incomplete understanding of God's attributes and his character at best. Consequently, they taught inaccuracies of God's plans and God's intentions. And so in this passage of Scripture, the first few verses are all about Micah responding to their accusations. In Micah chapter 1, Micah graphically portrayed God's judgment on Israel, the northern kingdoms. And uh, he, he grieved God's impending discipline of the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had already been swallowed up, the northern kingdom, and now next would be Babylon conquering Judah. In chapter 2, he gives the reasons for Israel's bad times. Powerful people will take advantage of the weaker ones. And we saw some examples of biblical oppression in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 last week. We don't know what oppression is. We use that term all the time. But the Israelites, the poor Israelites, they knew what true oppression was was. The powerful people, whether they be powerful socially or economically or politically, they would take advantage of the weaker ones by stealing their land, their homes, and also, as Micah said, their inheritance as well. But Micah was clear, and this old principle, this ancient principle that you reap what you sow will take place with the powerful people of Israel as well. They stole others' dignity, their reputation, and their liberty. And as a result, they too will lose their reputation, dignity, and freedoms as well. So now there was a clash, a clash between the true prophet, Micah, and other prophets who could be categorized as false prophets. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It says this, Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good in him whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver come and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. And so he says uh, there in verse 6, do not prophesy, and the word in the Hebrew that he's using there, for prophesy is to drip, so it's kind of like they were saying, do not let these words drip from your mouth, Micah. Do not let your sputtering, blabbering utterances destroy things. Because the reason why things are so bad in, in Israel and Judah is not because of what we're teaching, because we're all about being positive. But Micah, the thing that's destroying our nation is your negativity. Mm. Do not preach about judgment because that is exactly what is causing the problems. Micah, you are a downer. You're a big bummer. The false prophets were against saying that God would evaluate, criticize, judge, and course-correct Israel. It's negative. You see, the God that we know, He is a patient, loving God. Um... And yours is portrayed as negative. They See, they failed to teach that God would allow Israel to experience disasters. That instead, God would only ever bless His people. He would only allow good things to take place. You see, so the false teachers, the false prophets who confronted Micah, they would say that God is never angry. God does not judge. He only blesses. He is a God who loves his people, and adores them. But in verse 7, Micah asks a question, reviewing his teaching, suggesting that God can be impatient, linking the calamity of Israel to him, stating that God's goodness is experienced only by those who actually do good. So he states it in a positive sense, that if you do good then you will be blessed. That's an accurate statement. Now there's more to say about that, of course. And um, he stated it negatively. You could use these passages that state the same principle negatively, that God will most certainly judge sin. Have nothing to do with a false charge, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not quit the guilty. God will deal with it. See, that's why he's a righteous and just God, because he will deal with sin. Somebody has to pay for it, either the sinner himself or a substitute. Joshua 24 says, a similar principle: if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after He has been good to you. So there will be a response. There will be a reaction. There will be a natural consequence to our sin. So here he states it in a positive way that God's goodness is experienced by those who do good. Of course that's not a complete thing, but what he's doing here is he's, he's he's countering the false prophet's argument. Verse 8 tells us this, lately my people have risen up like an enemy, you strip off the rich robe for those who pass by without a care like men returning from battle. So the Israelites here's an example Here's an example of the bad that they've done. So, people who do this consistently and persistently, those who are characterized by this behavior, will not be blessed by God. Only good people get blessed by God, or people who do good things. And so, false teachers, you're treating the nation like enemies. Because more than anything else, more than anything else, the people need the truth. They need to be confronted. They need to be told that they are in deep sin. They need to experience national repentance because they are deep-seated in national sin. And so therefore, if you do not tell them the truth, you're treating them like enemies. And they are not God's enemies, they are God's people. So they need to be given an opportunity to change their ways so that way they can be blessed, that way they can be forgiven. So in verses 8 and 9, he gives two examples of how Israel has not done good. First of all, in verse 8, that they steal the clothes from unsuspecting people. And then verse 9 tells us this, that you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. So you steal the homes of Good women, of vulnerable women, perhaps widows. You take their homes and then you steal the inheritance from their children. Young children will lose what is coming to them. They're the ones that have ruined the land, you false prophets. Look what verse 10 says. It says, get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. And then Micah criticizes the false prophets. He imagines a man that he calls a deceptive prophet. In some of your translations, he, he calls them a man of the wind. And there he's using the Hebrew word ruah, which can be translated or understood as either the spirit of God or just as wind. So here he's using a word play. He says they are, they are, they are men of the wind, meaning that they'll go in whichever direction the wind is taking them, Simply because they want something from the people who listen to them. These false prophets! So they'll go into whatever direction is required to become popular, to be liked, to be admired, to get money and influence. These men of the wind, they are not men of the spirit, they are men of the wind. Some of your translations say that, some don't. Some call them just liars. He preaches also about wine and beer in verse 11. It says there, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, it would be just the profit for this people. Enter, stage left, some sarcasm. <laughs> if these people are advertising beer and wine and relief from the stresses of life, that will make them really popular instantaneously. Times have not changed, have they? He preaches about the wine and beer as if to give an example of something of insignificant nonsense. If they preach about insignificant nonsense, they will be immediately men of the people. You see, because you want your false prophets to approve of your sins, to verify your bad behavior and lousy choices. See, if you've got some false prophets who are eloquent and articulate who approve of your sins, well then, you're not doing wrong, at least in your own mind. Micah ridicules the character and the message of the false prophets who criticize him. And he does it with absolute brilliance, I mean, just for a second, appreciate the beauty of this literature. It blows me away to study it, to read it. you know, and it's kind of tucked away and toward the second half of the Old Testament. we don't read the Old Testament prophets that much, but the way he reveals and exposes the false teachers. And then it reveals his own heart and the proper direction for the Israelite state to go in. It's just brilliant, and it's, it's not only brilliant literature, it's inspired and inerrant. Amen? Wow. And so since it's inspired and inerrant, it's authoritative. So these words are heavy. They have impact. They have influence over us to the point to where it should change our way of thinking change our priorities, and also change our behavior as well. It's the word of the living God. That is the weight of these words. And so Micah ridicules the character and message of the false prophets who criticize him. If Is God gracious? Is he kind? Is he forgiving? Is he merciful? Will he keep his covenants? Yes, by all means, yes. But the false prophet had an incomplete view of God. They did not teach the part where God will discipline and will chastise his people. They only told the fun, easy part that God will bless you. See? And so when we have an incomplete view of God, we will be inaccurate in our theology. We can't help but be inaccurate if we do not worship, learn about, and experience the true God of Scripture. If we can't get God right, everything else will fall apart. See, it's the beginning point in systematic theology. We have different categories of theology. We have theology proper, it's the theology about who God is. What does the Bible say about God? We have Christology, we have who is Jesus Christ, we have soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, how are we saved, how are we reconnected back to God. We have angelology and demonology, what about the rest of the spiritual world. We have eschatology, the doctrine of future things, and so many other categories of theology. But if we don't have theology proper, right, all of the other, all of the other ologies will be messed up. And that's where the false teachers went wrong. They did not truly understand God. Or maybe they understood God, but they just left off the more difficult-to-receive parts so that way they could give a lot of happy talk and be liked by the masses. We don't know which one it is, but all we do know is that they gave lots of false teaching. So when we have an incomplete view of God, we will be inaccurate in the rest of our theology. Well we see a lot of this today, we hear that God never judges, God never gets angry, and so we wind up with an incomplete, one-dimensional view of God and also His intentions and His purposes. False prophets only looked at the Abrahamic covenant. They didn't look at the Mosaic covenant. They perhaps intentionally kind of put that by the wayside. They forgot about it. They wanted to be liked and they wanted to be popular. See, the Israelites' relationship with God was both unconditional and conditional at the same time. It's kind of two-dimensional, and it's not either-or. It's both-and at the same time. The Mosaic Covenant did not take away the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant is, You will be my people. All the burden is on me. It was made in Genesis chapter 15. It was reaffirmed in Genesis chapter 17. You will be my people, and anyone who blesses you will be blessed. Anyone who curses you, anyone who goes against you will be cursed. I will give you a people group. I will give you the law, and I'll give you land. That's the Abrahamic covenant, basically. It's unconditional and unilateral. It's all on God. Okay, We got that. But then, there's the Mosaic covenant, as soon as Israel... As the Israelites left bondage in Egypt, and God gave them the Mosaic law. He gave them the law of how they should live as a nation. So that way, they could be a shining city on a hill. So they could be God's representative people. So they could be distinct from a lost and dying, corrupt, sinful world. The Mosaic covenant was in stark contrast to the Abrahamic covenant. It was conditional and bilateral. And so you, the nation of Israel, if you sin, if you go and worship the Baal and the Molex, if you disregard me, then you will experience the natural consequences of going off course. And you will experience great, devastating loss. And so the Mosaic Covenant was conditional and bilateral both sides had responsibilities. God and the nation of Israel had responsibilities. Okay? So both of these relationships were happening at the same time that we read Micah. Okay. Then, fast forward to us under the New Covenant. Jesus, the Last Supper, instituted the New Covenant, this new style of relating that God would offer to mankind. And it, too, is both unilateral and unconditional, bilateral, and conditional. And so this same type of two-dimensional relationship exists between God and Israel and God and the church. That's us. And so the moment that we place our faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin, we are justified. Our sins are no longer held against us. Why? Because Jesus paid for them. But then not only does God get us from a massive deficit to a neutral of forgiven sins, then he continues to lay on the blessings and he gives us the righteousness that we need. The righteousness of Jesus is projected onto us. It's put into our account. So we're saved. We're justified. But then we also have to live the Christian life. And that's where the conditional part is displayed. Because God has expectations for us. Um, The Mosaic Law is canceled out, but there are still the commands of Jesus. And so our relationship with God, thankfully, is based upon the character and work of Jesus. That's why they call it good news. That can never be altered or taken away or revoked. But then our sanctification process is based upon our choices. It's based upon our character, and that's why it goes like this, right? So the relationship with God is in His hands, but then our fellowship with God, our discipleship, our journey, our walk is largely in our hands on how we respond. And so will God discipline us? Absolutely. And He disciplines us, He course corrects us simply because we are His people. We are His children. And so that's a good thing that he course corrects us. And God's Word obviously teaches that. So we have a relationship with God that is unalterable, but we also have fellowship with God that can go up and down. We tend to emphasize one or the other, sometimes based upon even our own personalities or how we're feeling on a given day some of us might emphasize and really only want to talk about or even just read about God's love and His grace and His mercy. And then we highlight, really, God's unconditional relationship with us and we celebrate that and we love it. And it's not inaccurate. It's very accurate. But it's inaccurate if we only ever talk about that or if we only ever study that or we only ever celebrate that because there's another dimension to our relationship with God. Some of us emphasize God's righteousness, His holiness, His purity, His, His demand for our productivity. And we highlight, then, God's conditional fellowship with us. For myself, I kind of go back and forth, depending on the day, the one that I'm focused on, right? But really, it's both and. It's both of those aspects, those two dimensions together. They're happening simultaneously. Sometimes we get them confused. Sometimes we overemphasize the love and grace and mercy, and then we live lives of licentiousness. And we all know Christians like that. Some of us maybe even fit into that category for a day or two out of seven. But then others are always harping on the righteousness and purity and the holiness and productivity of God. And that's a good thing to talk about that but it also has to be blended with God's love and grace and mercy. If we emphasize one over the other, we are like the false prophets. We're not giving a complete picture, and we're not experiencing God in all of his greatness, in all of his awesome wonder. So Micah, so that way he would be balanced, so that he would be complete, what does he do next? As he counters in verses six through eleven, he counters the charges of the false teachers, right? By their saying that that God doesn't judge, God only loves us. And then he's countering saying, No, God also holds us accountable. God has expectations for us. He wants us to be productive for him. He wants us To be holy like he is holy. And it's not wrong to teach that. In fact, it's accurate and expected to teach those things and to have those expectations for other people. That's what God wants for us. A little bit of pressure, a little bit of nudge, you know, to get us to make right choices. And so what Micah does is he gives the other side of the argument now. Because if someone only read verses 6 through 11... Maybe one would walk away thinking, wow, Mike is really kind of a negative person. He's only talking about God's judgment, God's expectations, and that God will allow us to experience difficulties because of our bad choices. But what he does is phenomenal. He, he articulates the other dimension in the most beautiful. Look what verses 12 and 13 say in chapter 2. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them the Lord at their head. I love it! He gives the complete picture. He gives the conditional aspects of God and then the unconditional aspects of God and His full style of relating to us all in just a few verses. He presents God as the Shepherd king who will gather his people. The soft side of God, come together. I'm your shepherd. I'm pulling you together close to myself to know you better and for me to know you, but also for your protection and your growth and your development and your restoration too. Come close to me. But then, what else does he call God? He says, I will rule over you because I am the sovereign royal as well. I am your king. I'm your shepherd and I'm your king simultaneously. He breaks down barriers so the sheep can gather into pleasant, green, prosperous pastures. He uses, as a shepherd, the staff and the rod to protect against predators, but also to grab the necks of the wayward sheep. See, he will not abandon. He certainly won't destroy, but he will preserve and he will renew his people at that future kingdom that we talk about here fairly frequently called the Millennial Kingdom. You see, God will restore his people By His grace. And you need His grace. You need His grace even when you're making good choices. Amen? You definitely need it when you're making bad choices. I do too. We need that forgiveness. We need those blessings. We need that restoration. We need that course correction. But then, we even need it when we think we're doing pretty well. We need God's graces to us. And I use that in the plural form. Intentionally and on purpose, because there's more than one gift or charis of God. There are his graces. It's multiple, because you and I have so many multiple deep needs that he has supplied us those needs according to his riches in glory. So God will restore his people by his grace, Great comfort, but the false teaching is a near and present danger. It is a troubling reality. Micah not only had it in his day, we see it all through the pages of Scripture. Malachi taught the love and justice of God, but according to Malachi's words, the people seem to doubt him. Is God loving? Is he just? The people in Jeremiah's day thought they'd be protected by God in his temple, even despite their sin. But God, according to Jeremiah, would depart the temple and allow it to be leveled, destroyed, burned down, wrecked. Jesus attacked the legalistic Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, and again and again he said, Woe to them! as a sign of their guilt and their imminent judgment. Paul condemned the Judaizers, those who would go to the churches right after he preached at the synagogue or in the public places of a particular city. And they would say, just disregard what Paul said to you, because we're Jews and we know exactly what you have to do in order to become a Christian In order to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. So you then get circumcised, and all of you must be obedient to the Mosaic law. And Paul wrote the book of Galatians to counter that false argument. The Apostle John also did battle against false teachers as well. He criticized the Gnostics in a number of his writings, those false teachers who were influenced by Greek philosophy that allowed that false teaching to permeate into the church of Jesus Christ. And so all through the pages of Scripture, we see examples of true prophets who did battle against the false teachers today, too. There are false teachers, not just in the public square, but they are in our very churches and have made quite a bit of significant progress in neutralizing the effectiveness of many evangelical churches, even. And so there are so many examples. My list, sadly, keeps getting longer as we learn about more different types of heresies and distortions of truth. There is ritualism and legalism, which permeates many, many churches across the globe, focusing that it's not relationship, it's ritual, it's things that I have to do, acts that I have to do in order to get God to like me or to keep liking me. And then they fall fall also into various forms of legalism, some salvation legalism, meaning I have to do a certain number of things in order to become saved, and then I also have to do another list in order to stay saved, and this is in Christian churches across the world, or lifestyle legalism that takes all of the gray areas of the Christian life and says, okay... We need to get serious here about our holiness. And so what we're going to do is regulate everything. And we're going to come up with rules and check boxes. So that way there's no ambiguity. So there's no differences inside the body of Christ. And these, these are even apart from the essentials of the faith. And so we're going to make everything either white or black. Okay, So we fall into lifestyle legalism. This is the Mecca for the health and wealth prosperity gospel. We know a lot about that already. That has permeated the church. I apologize when I go to Africa and speak at African churches because most of the health and wealth theology has come from American churches. And I say, I'm sorry, we send you some really good stuff, but we also export a lot of nonsense as well. And they're like, yeah, we know. Motivational thinking. We have a lot of preachers who are really good motivational speakers. Really good, but they will never talk about sin. Um, Eastern religions and New Age continue to make inroads in the church. The New Apostolic Reformation, those who believe that they have present-day apostles whose very words are on par with Scripture. Scary stuff. Progressive Christianity continues to influence many evangelical churches because... The pastors and the leaders, they just want to be hip. They don't want to be seen as kind of like from the 1950s. And so they try to enhance their teaching by adopting many progressive ideas today. And it's not that they all teach wrong things. It's that they leave out big chunks of the whole counsel of God's Word. What does the Word of God say about human sin? What does the Word of God say about God's view of human life? What does the Word of God say about human sexuality? They leave out the Bible's teaching on those sensitive but yet essential subjects. Critical race theory and social justice and wokeism has also strongly infected the church. And it's because... I believe a lot of these leaders and Christian pastors, they just want to be popular. And so, if you have white skin, you're automatically guilty. And there's really no way that you can ever be redeemed of that. And so, therefore, you must get on this continual bandwagon of false guilt. So, these are all examples of false teaching currently inside the body of Christ, in our world today. When we have an inaccurate view of God, we will automatically have a false understanding of his actions and his intentions and his plan. You and I, whether we're full-time professional ministry or whether we're part-time volunteer, you and I are called to teach the whole counsel of God's Word in our adult Sunday school Calibrate classes. You and I are called to teach the whole counsel of God's Word in our flock groups. You and I are called to teach the whole counsel of God's Word in our men's and women's Bible studies or in our neighborhood Bible studies, wherever it might be. Teach the whole thing. Don't leave anything out teach the easy to receive passages teach also the difficult to receive passages and everything else in between and God's people said amen let's pray together father we come before you and thank you for your word we thank you lord for uh, for micah uh this short little book tucked away in the recesses of the old testament and an ancient writing But a beautiful one, so well done, Lord. Thank you for Micah. One day we'll get to meet him. Thank you for his guts. Thank you for his skill, and thank you for the Spirit of God that allowed him to pen those words that we studied today. Um, Help us to help us to be changed by it all and transformed. Help us to. Feel bad about it if we need to feel bad about it. Help us, Lord, um, to be encouraged if we need to be encouraged. Help us to be informed. Help Help us to be adjusted by it, Lord. So that way we will not be adjusted and tormented by our bad choices. Help us to be course corrected. We pray this thing, all this, all these things, in the name of Jesus. Amen.